when you look at cloud fit, you very much need to look at, do I retain what I have? Do I rehost it? Do I replatform it? Do I refactor it? Or do I actually consolidate it with something else? And that's a very critical part of the decision-making process around where you go. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we talk with Alison Krill, Chief Technology Officer for Deutsche Borsa Group. Alison has lived and breathed financial services for around three decades now. She understands how to lead change from the banking side. And now, heading up business and technology strategy at Deutsche Borsa, She's getting to know the particular challenges of digital transformation at an exchange operator. Think many clouds, many offerings, many services, many regulators. Alison takes us through the considerations she has to take at Deutsche Borsa when making a decision on where and how to host her critical systems and services. Welcome, Alison. Great to have you join us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? Well, if you haven't assessed it by now, I'm American by birth and education, but I have spent my full uh, working career predominantly outside of the US, mostly in the UK, but also spent six years in Asia Pacific based out of Hong Kong. And now I've been in Germany based out of Frankfurt for the last eight, nine months with my current role. I have always been in technology, always been in financial services, and I have spent now, I guess, three decades working across a number of different roles within banking, covering fixed income, equities, group risk, more recently, corporate banking. And so I picked up the role at Deutsche Borsa as Chief Technology Officer, which is a slightly different dimension than I've done before to really drive our advanced innovation journey across the group. And the way that is set up and structured is through a number of key areas that I'm focused on. The first is it starts with enterprise architecture, making sure that we very clearly understand where our business is going, the business strategy, and align our technology transformation against that. The the second key component of my role is looking at data. So I'm responsible for our data business on the trading side. However, we've expanded the focus and mandate of that group to really focus on data strategy group-wide and also build out data architecture and governance that didn't exist or was being done in a very federated, disjointed way with a view that the data is such a critical asset for the industry going forward. And, and then lastly, this is probably where I spend uh, the most of my time is how we draw advanced innovation across the group. And that's led through what we call center of excellence teams. Cloud is a major part of our uh, journey and our strategy. And so I'd say that was the most mature and the first center of excellence team that we created. And we really support the group both in terms of our strategic partnerships, the expertise and educational and cultural transformation, but also spend a lot of time operationalizing newer technologies that we're adopting. And that operationalizing also includes the many discussions that we have with our compliance partners as well as regulators. So so since we started the cloud journey, we've also spun up a number of additional center of excellence teams in the areas of automation, big data, advanced analytics, and also DLT. 
The team also focuses on evaluating the next sort of disruptions. And we do a lot of POCs and some of those POCs do get into production use cases, evaluating technologies such as quantum computing. Wow. Okay. Um, so, So from a career perspective then, how did you end up here? It's been an interesting journey. If you had asked me 30 years ago if I would have seen myself leaving America, spending my entire career outside of the US, I I wouldn't have uh, believed you. I actually studied engineering and, and even to get to engineering, my initial plan was to study architecture. And then architecture evolved into civil engineering and and then civil engineering evolved into a career in IT. So I went to Cornell University and was quite fortunate to, by chance, have an interview with a bank who had a graduate program who convinced me that this was the industry and the role that I wanted from a exciting transformation, always challenging new products, but technology has significantly emerged over the last three decades in its role in the industry. And so I was very fortunate to find myself with a great role that basically allowed me to start as sort of a C++ developer building a corporate bond trading system. I did that for the first four years and then had a a very supportive manager that gave me the opportunity to go to the UK. So I spent the next decade plus in the UK where I worked in a variety of roles in technology from development to business analyst, to project manager, to back-end development, to then doing more organizational leadership, both with the bank that moved me and then worked for a German bank for sort of decade two. Uh, Decade three was an opportunity to move to Asia to lead equity technology in that region, which was an incredible experience. Someone said to me when I first took the role that in a year, you learn about seven years of knowledge. And I would agree with that in terms of the complexity of the environment in Asia, the number of jurisdictions, the number of regulators. So that was a fantastic kind of opportunity. Came back to the UK 2016 to take up a different role in corporate banking. And really the Deutsche Borsa opportunity excited me because it was something different than I had done before. I'd never worked in the kind of core, which is the market infrastructure. And I really liked the opportunity of taking my many years of domain experience, building business solutions and operating in a more horizontal role that allowed me to really drive innovation across the group and and work in a company where engineering and technology was at the core, given its key role within the industry. Okay. Okay. So looking back then, what would you say was your career defining moment? It has to be sort of moving to Asia. I'd been quite settled in the UK. I'd recently bought a house and an ex-manager reached out to me and said, what do you think about coming and living and working in Asia? And yeah, I probably wouldn't have gone if I didn't know the individual and I didn't know the company quite well that I was rejoining. But it was a fantastic experience for me to work as part of a large bank, but really have Uh, somewhat independence, independent time zone, your own mini business that you have to kind of operate and run autonomously. But then at the same time, being part of a, a bigger organization, the challenges of making sure that you're very much connected to the core, the core strategy and aligned and integrated with the rest of the organization. 
Uh, it, it also taught me a lot about balance. Arrived in Asia and I attended every single night meeting that people <laughs> asked me to join. And I soon realized that I was working 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day. So I just personally with professionally, I learned to put boundaries in around what to join, what to get delegate. Don't join a meeting uh, if you're not contributing. So I would say from a knowledge perspective, both um, industry-wise and also personally, it was a great experience. Yeah, I, I, I understand completely what you mean about that, the time zone and, and how it's a wake-up call. One of my colleagues said, uh, you've got to bear in mind the candle that burns at both ends burns really bright for half the amount of time. So, so it made you know it just makes you realise actually that you've you've got to be looking after yourself. Very quickly, you can find uh, yourself on the wrong side. Um, okay, so let's move into our next section, which is our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So in our in our past few episodes, we've covered operations before strategy, uh, the future of financial services from a people perspective, the harrowing statistics and impacts of cybersecurity uh, on financial services, how we innovate and how we innovate in how we innovate. Um, and then we've had quite a few discussions on the journey to cloud, multiple clouds and multi-cloud. And um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on these topics and more from your unique place within the financial services industry. Well, I'll start with cloud and then feel free to jump in and direct me to some of the many topics on that list. So for Deutsche Borsa, just for the audience, if they're not aware, Deutsche Borsa is an international um, exchange organization. And we very much at the core of our business, we focus on innovative market infrastructure. Most people, when they think about Deutsche Borsa, they think about the German exchange, but we're far more than that in terms of the service product offerings that we have. And, and we truly offer the full range of products, services, and technologies that encompass sort of the entire value chain of, of financial markets. And, and that is an interesting dynamic because when it comes to technology, it's not a sort of one size fits all. And I've definitely seen that on our journey to cloud. And, and it's not a one cloud fits a particular business need. It's many clouds, many offerings, many services. And, and so we need to sort of build that into our, our overarching strategy. So cloud, I, I think for any organization, and I know some have been slower in, in adopting and, and financial services as an industry has been slower in adopting, but it's essentially an essential component of, of any modern IT strategy to ensure that you have future ongoing sustainable competitiveness. And for us, it's a key pillar and we see it being of multiple different benefits, whether it's the agility and the elasticity of being able to have time to market and ensuring that certain new business models, especially as they come and are centered around data and analytics, you, you need that ability to scale up, scale down in an efficient and effective way. It's been important for us in terms of quality. We have done a lot of our development and testing environments in the cloud as part of the initial wave of our journey. And in our trading landscape, which you know is probably not appropriate from a low latency perspective for 
ultimately running in public cloud, although I say never, never say never, because I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years it is running in, in public cloud. But in that environment, we've also gotten huge benefits out of leveraging cloud technology to improve our development efficiency, time to market from a DevOps perspective, but also the ability to build out simulation and test environments, both for our own internal testing, but also testing with clients. And so there's a huge quality angle that we've also seen. And lastly, it's around innovation and building out new business models that we would not have been able to to launch or, or do in the past, that by looking at cloud native, cloud first, some of the service offerings that our partners can now provide to us, we're able to build out new business models specifically in the area of analytics and, and advanced machine learning. We also would say there is the cost driver and we do look at cost and we look at the business case around being on-prem versus moving to, to cloud. And we've noticed that cost as a driver doesn't always necessarily stand on its own and you can't get the business case if you're just looking at a, a lift and shift. And so you really need to look at the, the broader value chain of what cloud gives you. And sometimes that comes with re-architecting the platform from cloud native to basically ensure that you're getting some of the benefits of those new and broader services. So I'd, I'd say on the cloud journey, I, I feel we're advanced, but we're still at the beginning of the journey. We've been about five years in. We're about 28% of our environment operating in the cloud today. We have an ambition to grow at about 10% per year into the public cloud. But I would also say that we're very re realistic that by cloud, it's not just the third-party CSPs, but also looking at a broader cloud on-premise into sort of public cloud landscape. And there are certain parts of our services and capability that will continue to operate on-prem because it makes sense from a business capability, security, data protection, latency perspective, but we always take a cloud first approach in terms of why can't it run in a public cloud? And then we work back from there. And I would say that this is where products and, and partnerships like VMware are very important for us because as we go into sort of the cloud journey and, and standardizing how we operate, we very much want to look at how we operate this new on-prem in the cloud environment through single control plane and make sure that we have consistent operations and support. So you say it's kind of a cloud first why can't it be in the public cloud? But it sounds from what you're talking about that you're embracing the multiple cloud vision rather than the multi-cloud architecture yes, vision. Yes, yes. Is that fair or is, it, is, is there a place for that as well? There is. So I would say we, we have two aspects. We have multiple cloud service providers that operate public clouds as part of our landscaping ecosystem. And that choice and decision was really driven by a number of factors. One, the different cloud providers have different service offerings, they have different geographical footprints, and we also, from a resiliency perspective, need to make sure that we have an exit strategy in anything that we are onboarding with a third-party vendor. And we, we feel that that also gives us the ability to be quite aggressive as we discuss what requirements and what's needed from a, a regulatory landscape. 
as we move to public cloud. But we don't see that we'll ever have 100% of our environment operating in public cloud. And there's still platforms and services and capabilities that just make sense to run in an on-prem data center. And as I mentioned, we'll probably need to continue to run in an on-prem data center, at least for the next coming years while cloud technology continues to mature. And that's where we need to make sure that we can manage an ecosystem of platforms that consist of both platforms that operate in a public cloud, but also ones that operate in our own on-prem data centers and continually looking at how we manage that hybrid environment together. Nice. And given my... Well, I guess limited experience in terms of working with the exchanges when I was in the US, the exchanges sit at the heart of the financial system. That's how they like to position themselves. And they're also very much engaged with the regulators and that whole conversation around what's regulatory approved, what's not, and pushing in both directions. If you can talk about it, what are the main concerns that you get to talk to the regulators about and how are you, with your strategy, looking to overcome them? So so the key concerns from regulators as we move into a cloud and especially public cloud setup is really around how we outsource and then how do we make sure that we manage risk and control and security and operational resiliency in the same way as we operate in what's been the, the previous model of an on-prem infrastructure where you have full control to how do you manage that same level of resiliency, robustness, risk and control and security in a world that is now more outsourced. And so outsourcing is a you know, key component of the discussions that we have. Resiliency is another one, security and data protection. But we, we also support a vast number of different regulators. And depending on the business model, we also have different demands from those regulators. And so there's also topics around geographical sovereignty. And it's not just only about where your data sits, but also who has access to operate that platform and have access to that data, even if it's in an encrypted form. And so you get into a lot more discussions around where cloud provider data centers sit. Do they have an offering in the jurisdiction that you need? And also, how are their operations set up? Or they might have a data center sitting in Frankfurt, but then there may be other concerns that are raised if it's fully operated offshore from the U.S. And so we get into a lot of discussions and and dialogues similar to that. And I would say that's another key driver around why it's not a single cloud journey, but a multi-cloud journey, because you will have different demands. And sometimes the vendor offerings differ within each jurisdiction, and you need that flexibility to support all of the dimensions of your business, whether it's geographically centered in Europe or you've got parts of your business operating in Asia and certain locations in Asia. I think that's one of the things that the people in terms of working for an exchange, you are not bound by where your exchange is. You operate in many different jurisdictions in terms of where you trade and how you trade and the products and services that you support and with the partner ecosystems that sit within those jurisdictions. And having multi-partner allows you to have the challenging discussions with your partners to say, we need to go with this offering because they offer this capability and service that you don't have the maturity around or doesn't exist. 
And I think that kind of discussion also helps them think about where they need to invest and where they need to mature on their side. On the cloud discussion, I mean, one of the things that we get involved with and, and we have to give an opinion on, um, or we're asked to give an opinion on, is probably a better way of describing it, is the cloud exit strategies, right? The, the what-if scenarios. And, and that's changed radically over the past 18 months because of what's gone on around the world. Do you get similar questions from the regulators in terms of you know the, the scenario planning? A hundred percent. So for every strategy where we've chosen a particular sort of cloud provider, we also draft an exit plan. And that exit plan you know, can be immediately or it can be days or it can be months, depending on the criticality and, and what the platform is. It differs for, say, your ERP system than maybe a sort of business critical trading component. And so exit plan is a key component. And, and we also look at what technologies and how we sort of build out our platform so that we can do that seamless shift between one provider and, and another. And we, you know, we've been a sort of partner of sort of VMware's for a while looking at that. And we did initial uh, proof of concept last year, leveraging Google Cloud, where we were able to evidence and, and test and validate that we were able to move uh, workload from an on-prem environment to a cloud environment and back within seconds. So we, we don't have that need at the moment, but we've validated that this sort of technology supports us should we need to have that as part of our exit strategy. So that's interesting then around the ability to switch. Within your cloud strategy, how high up is that in that kind of optimal architecture uh, conversation around that, that kind of switchability versus exploiting unique capabilities of each of the cloud service providers? I would say it's a, a combination of both. I don't think uh, one necessarily sort of outweighs the other. The capabilities are what drive the business case often. And so if you don't have the capabilities and the benefit, then it's hard to actually get traction and movement anyway. And the exit strategy always has to be there. So it's not a, do I need this? You must have the exit strategy. And it's then looking at what are the requirements and time to move and what's the best solution for that. So given the strategies you've got, which actually a lot of people we talk to have, have kind of moved now from the all in with one to maybe all in with a handful. But one of the things that we were seeing happening is each part of IT or each line of business or each subsection that's got some IT responsibility creates or has its favorite partner or cloud service provider or otherwise. And we think there's a real danger of recreating those kind of really old enterprise IT silos in the clouds, where in the past enterprise IT might have been criticized for being something that slowed down the cycle to production. Just because you can do it quickly in one cloud doesn't necessarily make that the right cloud, right? So so how what are you doing then in your architecture around not recreating those old silos? So I would say that that is where we definitely are looking at containerization, not just lift and shift, but how do we build out our migration to cloud to also build in a way that we're leveraging containers, but also making sure that going back to some of the discussions that, that we've had with VMware, how do we make sure that we have an abstraction layer where we don't have that lock-in 
and do have a view of we've got multiple clouds that meet our requirements in specific places, but you've got the ability to operate different components, different systems in a broader sort of ecosystem. Alison, one of the things that we see very frequently within our customer conversations is that technology is never really the blocker, right? It's the enabler in many ways, but to drive technology, people are driving to a different culture, looking at different organizational constructs and operating models. Um, and in some instances, they're using technology to fuel that cultural change. And what are you experiencing with the Deutsche Bourse? So, so I think one of the benefits of and one of the reasons why we set up the Center of Excellences was to, to one, make sure that we have oversight around not creating silos, central oversight of where we're going and how it interconnects and plays together. But also the Center of Excellences provide a big part of that cultural transformation and change and bringing people along the journey. People don't like change naturally. I think most people like to operate something that they know that they've been working on, that they've been doing. It has specific frameworks that they cannot operate in. And you need, with new technology adoption, you need to drive that cultural change as much as the technology change. And it's also been you know, very easy because we are in a regulatory environment for people to just say, no, the regulators won't allow it. I can't run in the public cloud because it's this type of workload. And they don't even have the discussion or, or look at it with the regulators. It's just a been there, done that, can't do that. And that's for us where the center of excellence is really bridge that gap in understanding, but also challenging the status quo, getting people to think out of their comfort zone and how they've been operating multiple years. But, but also as they go to the cloud, make sure that they're also thinking about how to transform how they work and not just looking at it as a, let me move my infrastructure from on-prem into the cloud, but keep my operations the same way that I've always run them. Because you definitely then won't get the cost advantages if you're doing the same thing in the old way, but in a new world. Yeah, my observation is that the mindset that got you the problem is never going to be the same mindset that gets you out the problem. Although I think I'm quoting Einstein when I say that, if I'm honest. <laughs> he probably said it far better than I do. You mentioned earlier on about architectures, and one of the things that, again, I'm very aware of is when people talk about cloud and, and multi-cloud, actually what sits at the centre of that is a very flexible architecture to enable that. Whereas many organizations have assumed you have a fixed architecture and that's the way to go. How are you developing the architecture at, um, at the Bourse? It's interesting because architecture used to be very federated and each product area has their own architecture function. And we've only reestablished a, a central enterprise architecture group and function, looking at it uh, across the group and making sure that we have a sort of interconnected strategy and, and standards and principles, but, but again, where it makes sense. So as we move to a particular cloud provider, we want to do it in a consistent way. And so that's an area where it makes sense to partner through our architecture community and make sure that we align on standards and, and approach. But we're only recently sort of bringing it back 
together and, and making sure that we've got a community where we're focused on standards, principles, what makes sense to line on, where it makes sense not to align, because we've got different challenges and different businesses that we're supporting, but drive that through community of, of architectures, uh, of architects coming together and discussing and aligning on those topics. So earlier, earlier on, you talked about container strategies and how that was giving you some additional flexibility. What's your take on the, on the current state of the world with regard to containers? Is it going to solve all the problems? You know, I think in the same way, maybe three, five years ago, blockchain was going to solve everything. Right now, you know, Kubernetes and, and containers are, are the answer to every IT problem. You know, what's your take from your unique position on that? So my view is it's one of many different components and sort of a, a toolkit of services that help us drive towards an outcome in an architecture where we are creating more software-defined driven infrastructure. But on its own, Kubernetes doesn't solve the world's problems, similar to cloud on its own doesn't solve the world's problems. And so I think from a architecture perspective, I look at it as many different building blocks that you need to work with to actually build out the right ecosystem that has the business capability, resiliency, time to market, efficiency of delivery deployment that you need. So I don't think it's Kubernetes will solve all the world's problems. It definitely helps us in terms of creating a layer of segregation, but doesn't necessarily solve the world's problems on its own. We have, as part of our COE and, and cloud journey, we, we also have a containerization strategy built out, a kind of containerization platform that teams can leverage and utilize to make the journey easier. One of the things we've been talking about in how we can better work with financial services customers is how we differentiate the conversation between building modern apps, modernizing the old apps, and replacing some of the legacy core. It feels like they're three very separate things that tend to just gonna get bunched up together with new ways of doing things. Do you have take on that, you know, around this fast building of modern apps to modernization to wholesale replacement of legacy? Yeah, so one of the things that we've done to define how we progress on our sort of cloud journey, I, me I mentioned we started about five years ago. And when we started, we very much started focusing on development and test environments. So more the infrastructure sort of side of the value chain. But what we've now done is matured our approach. And we're looking at what makes sense to move into sort of our multi-cloud environment, both from a security perspective, and we look at security and data protection and what the fit is to operating in public cloud. But we also look at two other dimensions, which is what's the business benefit and what does the business platform outcome look like once you get to cloud and does that make sense? But also the other dimension of that business case and business readiness is cloud fit. And when you look at cloud fit, you very much need to look at, do I retain what I have? Do I rehost it? Do I replatform it? Do I refactor it? Or do I actually consolidate it with something else? And that's a very um, you know, critical part of the decision-making process around where you go. And then once you get there, you need to be realistic that 
you are never going to get kind of the investment levels to move everything and refactor it to be cloud native. So you need to operate in this sort of combined ecosystem of legacy and new world and making sure that you can bring those platforms together and operate them as one. I, I, I think Greg Lavender mentioned in his podcast which I can very much relate to after years and years in financial services, is banks don't, don't like disruption. Our whole model is trust in markets and making sure that we operate a stable, resilient platform. And therefore, change is hard. And you're not going to change everything to the new world, especially when you've been operating platforms and services that have existed for decades and they do the job that they need to. So you definitely need to look at where you start, where the business case makes sense, the dimensions of the cloud journey, but then also be building out the platform and leveraging services that allow you to manage this very hybrid ecosystem. And I think that, you know, that's where we have a lot of discussions with your team Ragu and others around how we can have services from VMware that really allow us to operate this complex ecosystem. So what are your thoughts then in the, you know, we talked about that kind of modern apps versus modernizing, you know, are, there, are your dev teams working in kind of legacy ways and modern ways, or are they all trying to move up to being incremental delivery? You know, what, what, how, do you, how are you kind of working that they all, everyone wants DevOps versus not, you know? So we've got, <laughs> so we've got the whole array of different technologies from mainframe still to more modern apps that we've sort of built out in the last year. So you really have the range of different platforms, technologies. And if you kind of threw a technology out there, we probably have it somewhere in the Deutsche Borsa group, even though we're relatively small. And what we've tried to sort of encourage is consistency of DevOps process and consistency of DevOps toolchain to get people thinking in uh, an agile sort of continuous delivery methodology, even though I will admit that some parts of our platforms, and this is even also down to customer demand and customers don't want regular changes when you're sort of at the center and you're the exchange provider. Some of our platforms, they have quarterly release cycles. So we've tried to change the culture and the thinking to be continuous delivery, leveraging a consistent sort of DevOps process even though the pace of change and how we work in different places across the organization can be vastly different from doing regular changes to doing quarterly changes, as I mentioned. And it was interesting to come from an environment on the bank side where, especially in electronic trading, we did 3,000 changes a year. But the exchange operator, no one wants 3,000 changes per year. No. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, we need to make sure that we're operating in a modern way where we continually see change, test, deploy, even if it's not that deployment to the end product out to the client. No, no, that's good. And, and no, I know we hadn't planned to ask that question. Uh, and I'm sure that you'll have many customers and regulators very pleased with your answer. I think that embracing it for the people so that they can learn the new ways of working and can feel very much invested in whilst maintaining that quality of service, which you absolutely is your brand and is so, so, so important. I think it's a, a great answer. Yeah. And central DevOps. And one, one of the things that that has given us having everyone on platforms like GitHub is that through COVID, we've been able to validate that we're still having the same level of productivity from our developers and deployment side 
in COVID times as what we were seeing pre-pandemic, and that's important. All right, so let's move on. Let's uh, look into the future and let's go to our crystal ball section. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So, Alison, then, um, we covered a lot already. Um, what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for, for 2021 and beyond? And, and how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? So it's interesting. I think financial services has always had a level of disruption. And, and you could go back to thinking about the shift from high-touch trading to sort of the introduction of electronic trading. And, and also the transition as we've gone more to online banking and digital payments. And I think the next wave of disruption and where we're going to see technologies really having an impact in the industry is the topic of DLT. And I know DLT has been out there since 2009. There was a lot of hype and discussion around it circa 2016, but we've also seen now maturity of the technology stacks with DLT from the first generation, which was blockchain, to now much more enterprise-grade blockchain platforms that operate private permissioned blockchains that meet the needs that we have in terms of resiliency, trust, performance, in the financial services industry. And, and I see that next wave of disruption is likely going to be digitization of securities. We've for a long time had lack of standardization around securities and that's led to a lot of inefficiencies, reconciliations in financial services. And this technology, and now I think it's at the level of maturity that we need, is, you know, over the coming years, really going to transform the way that the, the market infrastructure operators work today. And I see that the legacy and how we operate is not going to go away overnight, but we'll start to see over the next five years, this emergence of a combined world between things that were more paper process, non-standardized in how they were issued uh, and managed to a digital security where we have a digital contract and, and everyone is looking and sharing it the same view and the same view of the sort of life cycle events around that security. And so, so we've been um, in partnership and, and discussions with some of what you guys have been doing with sort of VMware blockchain, looking at how you've improved the enterprise level of blockchain and have matured sort of the service offering for the industry over the last couple of years as well. Um, I'd say the other thing, and I mentioned it early on in terms of we're constantly looking at what are the disrupting technologies out there, and we're making sure that we're educating ourselves and sort of building understanding. Quantum computing is one of those that we started looking at last year and we're continuing to look at. We did a, a POC with a quantum expert consultancy company called WIOS, and, and it ran on the, the IBM quantum environment to take something that we couldn't tackle through traditional compute means, which was multidimensional operational risk scenarios, and we tested that out in quantum. And, and it did actually show us the capability. It's not quite there yet in terms of the accuracy that we need for that use case, but we're definitely seeing the maturity and, and also see the investment happening in quantum across broader industry as one of the next disrupting factors. And it'll give us the ability to solve problems that we couldn't do before in an efficient, timely manner. 
Oh, fabulous. So on that topic, I, I know you have a lot of conversations with Greg, but I, one to absolutely talk to, with him about is quantum resistant cryptography. It's quite a, a piece of work that we're looking at the moment, how we can plug in and out different cryptography engines and how we help our customers to be ready. Whilst there's still some way for quantum supremacy to be with us, taking some steps soon to give us that resistance to, um, to that eventuality. It, you know, it sounds yeah. like something we could be co-innovating on. Definitely, definitely. And I listened to the um, podcast of your innovation team where uh, they were talking about what they're doing in that space. And it's very interesting and, and something that we would be very keen to look at in, in partnership. Fabulous. I will let Chris know. <laughs> okay, so let's move on. Let's move to our lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Okay, so the idea, this is a fast, fun round. Pass is okay, and there's no right and wrong answers. This is just your uh, your view. I apologize now if Brian does get involved in questioning your choice of particular items, as he did last time with Jennifer. We'll try and keep him calm down. This one. <laughs> never question your boss. I'll have to listen to her podcast. Never question, you never question your boss's choice of music. There you go. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's start with what, you know, favorite book or movie? So my favorite movie is Lost in Translation. So I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan and I just love how it depicts Tokyo, but also depicts it from a foreigner's eyes in this weird and wacky world. Uh, so that's my favorite uh, movie. Favorite book, probably going back quite a bit in time. I really like John Irving. Maybe it's because I've got some ties to New Hampshire, but I love the book A Prayer for Owen Meany. Cool. All right, my go. Um, your favorite one-day location to get away? So favorite one day, I'll have to go from somewhere in Germany, given that I now live here. And it would probably be tied between going up to the Taunus, which is about 20 minutes away, and, and hiking in the hills surrounding Frankfurt. Or, which I like to do before we got locked in again, go to the Rheingau, where you can go for a walk along the vineyards and then stop for a glass of wine at the end of your hike in something called a pro beer stand along the, the Rhine River. <laughs> Sounds good to me. They're great answers. There's no, there's no, yeah, no getting away from those being good answers. Um, what's your favorite place of all the places you've traveled? So it probably comes back to my movie answer and it has to be Japan. I love Japan. I love the cities. The food is fantastic and there's such a wide variety of things that you can eat. But you have everything from hectic city to beautiful places like Kyoto with temples and fantastic skiing uh, going up north. Yeah, I, I, I too loved living in Japan. That was although I lived in Japan a long, long, long while. Ah, you lived in Japan. See, I'm jealous. Um, right. My, if if I go back to Asia, I will live in Japan. So it was a it was a cool place to be. Um, first concert or live performance that you saw? So it was probably in Connecticut, and it was Ten Thousand Maniacs at a, a venue in New Haven. I know who 10,000 Maniacs are, so you're fine. I know. Many of the <laughs> listeners not, may no. not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself. Well, both of us. Um, <laughs> so, um, what's the favorite item that you've bought in the past year? We have moved to Frankfurt during a pandemic. So we've not done a lot of shopping other than bits and bobs and furniture. 
But one thing we did recently buy is a new barbecue. And we've always been more towards uh, charcoal barbecues. So this is our first sort of gas-based one. And we bought a one something called a Flammkraft, which is a German-made barbecue made by two guys out of their garage. And it's very, very cool. <laughs> right. There'll be people who'll be looking it up. That's what we know. That's good. That's cool. Morning or evening person? I'll have to go with morning. But interestingly, that's shifted as I've become older. So I used to be an evening person. Now I'm a morning person. I do my exercise in the morning before starting my day. Oh, there you go. So what one piece of career advice do you wish you'd have given to your younger self? So don't beat yourself up around your failings and setbacks. Where you tend to learn the most are the things that actually don't go well and the successes that actually don't happen. And it's sometimes more about the journey and the lessons that you get out than necessarily the win or the great outcome. So learn from things that don't quite work out. Don't obsess over them. Draw a line under the lessons that you've learned and move forward. Cool. When was the last time you used cash? Um, and where and what for? So during the initial part of the pandemic, I was in the UK and I was locked down. And I think it was probably about three, four months that I did not use cash. And then I moved to Germany and I realized that Germany still operates. It's changing and, and definitely things are becoming more and more digital and ability to not use cash. But I, every week I use cash because I go to something called the Volkenmarkt, which is your weekly farmer's market. And that still is entirely cash-based. And I buy my white asparagus, which is in season right now. Uh, so that's my, my one cash transaction a week. Oh, wow. So as a child, what would your superpower be and why? I'm a big fan of the Incredibles movie. And I really like, uh, I think, what is, is she Flexi Girl? I think it's just super cool that she can morph her body into any shape to save the day when a plane blows up, lowering her family down through a parachute. So I'd be Flexi Girl. <laughs> This is an interesting one, something that's very topical. How do you stay productive and motivated whilst working permanently virtually? It's hard because I'm definitely more of an office person. I like the people and the social interaction. And I think it's also hard in the virtual setup to, if you're getting up and sitting directly at your desk. And so for me, I'm a big runner uh, and it's important for me to make sure that I have some structure and discipline around my day. So to stay motivated and productive, I wake up, I do some form of exercise, whether it's yoga or running, and that kind of puts some structure around my day. And I've also become more disciplined of making sure that I might log back in after dinner, but I at least step away and have dinner at a reasonable time. Wow. So who's your mentor or have you been most inspired by? Probably I don't have a single mentor, but many people that I've worked with across my career, I am inspired by people who are continually learning and evolving themselves, taking new risks, new opportunities, and I probably will call out one uh, leader that I've worked for that inspires me tremendously. She's based in the UK, but a boss I had, Sarah Wilkinson, who has gone from technology and financial services industry to working for the home office to, to basically leading the National Health Service during the pandemic as the head of their digital um, arm. And uh, so, so I've been incredibly you know, impressed and inspired by her career journey and the way that she's constantly taken her skills and moved them across industry and now working in an area which has had tremendous you know, impact to the UK over the last year. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised when Sarah did that. To be fair, but but now now a lot of people have benefited from where she where she sat and what she was able to do. Um, right, question from me. Um, my favourite question. So you have to sing in a karaoke bar. What song do you pick? Is it a group song or a solo <laughs> song? I've, I've never been. I've never had a retort like that. Um, or or <laughs> duet. Okay, or duet. I like all the answers now. That's it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll start with the group song. So I'm a big Pet Shop Boys fan, and so I have to go with Go West because it's Pet Shop Boys, but it's also a great football anthem, and it's easy to sing and it gets the group going. From a duet perspective, I love Pogue's Fairy Tale of New York. Uh, great duet, especially if it's the holiday season. And then my, I'm not a great singer, so my my choice of solo is more rap based. And if you know the song, it's by Young MC, uh, which is now I'm going name blank on the song, <laughs> but it's a well, rap song. Well, well, that's, 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 <laughs> give us a line. That's as diverse as you can get. She, she's. Uh, yeah, she's dressed in yellow. She says, hello, come sit next to me, you fine fellow. <laughs> right, now that's set the bar so high. And it's called Buster Move. It's called Buster Move. That, that's set the bar so high for the next people that are on. Not only do I want your karaoke song, I want you to, give, I want you to send me some licks out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I, I did live in Asia, yeah, so yeah, I have yeah, a catalogue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've, all, we've all got those. Um, all right, so, um, on, you know, whilst we're still jolly then, so if you were an ice cream, what flavour would you be? So I'll probably go with my favorite ice cream, which is the Stacciatello, because uh, it's I love vanilla ice cream, but having like the chocolate crunch added in just makes it extra nice. I'm, I'm still living the karaoke dream. Before <laughs> <it>. <laughs> And we can decide whether to oh, cut no. that. No, 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 You might have already covered this in our crystal ball, but what, you, what are you most excited for about the future of financial services and technology? So for me, as an international citizen that has brokerage accounts and currencies in multiple jurisdictions, I'm really excited about everything becoming more digital. I have massively benefited when online banking came into play, especially if you don't speak the local language and I'm still learning German. Just having everything be in a digital platform and being able to manage all of your finances electronically, I'm super excited about. Fantastic. Okay. Alison, thank you so much for your time today. It's been hugely insightful and good fun too. So uh, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate the time and thank you all for organising this. To keep up with the latest work Alison's doing at Deutsche Börse, please do follow her on LinkedIn. We'll have a link to her page in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O-N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and you could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or even wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.